0: and welcome to Regenerative Rising's podcast, Elevating Stories, Activating Change. I am your host, Nisha Mary-Paulos, Executive Director of Regenerative Rising, and with me today is Caitlin Smith, Founder and CEO of Simple Mills. Set up in 2012 with the vision of making it easier for people to access healthy food, Simple Mills use paleo and gluten-free ingredients to create nutrient-rich food that is simple to prepare and simple to find. Caitlin founded the company as a response to her own struggle to find wholesome food in the market. Today, their products are available in stores across the US and has become a much loved brand that stands for the health of people and of the planet. Thank you for joining us today, Caitlin. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I'm really excited because Simple Mills is all about healthy, wholesome and yummy food. And it's a story of a young woman who blazed the trail. Uh, Your story is very inspiring. And um, why don't you tell us a little bit more about uh, what the company is and uh, where you're at?
1: Certainly, certainly. So I, uh, I started Simple Mills about 10 years ago, uh, after cleaning up my diet and taking out a lot of the processed food and a lot of the sugar. And what I discovered when I when I cleaned up my diet was just how much food affects in our bodies and our health. Uh, when I, when I started the company, you know, funny enough, like sugar was the number one ingredient in a lot of baking mixes, for example. Um, and, and I just realized so many of the decisions we've made as a food system are, uh, are less than ideal for people's health. They're really kind of profit-centered decisions versus, um, health or what's best for people decisions. And I, I started thinking about how I could help change what people are eating, and ultimately landed on the idea of, of starting a food company that does it differently, that makes these um, kind of really, uh, really delicious and also uh, approachable and convenient. Uh, snacks out of things that we want to be eating more of instead of things that we want to be eating less of. Um, So commonly we use ingredients like almond flour and coconut sugar, um, sunflower seeds, flax seeds, chia seeds uh, to create familiar treats. So things like a cheddar cracker or um, a chocolate chip cookie uh, so that it's easy to eat real food. And, um, and and I think the other kind of cornerstone of our brand is really never using anything artificial. So we like to say only purposeful ingredients, nothing artificial ever. Um, and this is something that's, that's really unique for us. There's a lot that goes behind, um, behind our sourcing, which, um, which is something that we've paid attention to from day one of the business of thinking about one, how do we diversify what people are eating in their diets? Um, but, but really also how do we get, um, uh, looking at the ingredients themselves and how they're created, uh, and making sure that those are done with people's health and mind. So I'll give you an example. So, um, I was, we have a pumpkin, uh, muffin mix and, uh, pumpkin powder. Uh, I was sourcing pumpkin powder at one point and found that the what you would label as pumpkin on an ingredient deck um, was actually about 20% maltodextrin, which is actually corn. Uh, so that's a processing aid, um, which is something that we're not okay with as a brand. Uh, we're not okay with um, kind of these hidden, these hidden agents in, in food, but it's something that's very common in the food industry. And so it's led to us working very closely with our suppliers to um, to to develop ingredients even. So like we, in that case, we worked with the supplier to develop a pumpkin powder that didn't have maltodextrin in it. Um, but most recently it's been something that has enabled us to enter into this world of regenerative agriculture, uh, which kind of leads me to the second part of our mission um, and uh, I, I'd say it was probably 2019, 2020, when I started getting really excited about the impact that our, um, that our agriculture system has on our planet's wellness. Um, and I realized just how hand in hand um, people in planetary wellness is. And this led me to, and we can talk more about this, but this led me to doing um, even like perm- permaculture design courses, um, reading books, and um, talking to talking to growers, and, and and thinking about how do we at Simple Mills leave a positive a positive mark on our planet, and and, and I think that I feel a large sense of responsibility as a um, as a founder and CEO in the natural food space in the food space. Um, to to leave a positive mark, you think about most industries, they can only uh, do more harm uh, or do less harm. Um, so like, that's where you get the term sustainability, right? It's, um, you're trying to do a little bit less harm. Um, But the food industry, we have a powerful opportunity to actually leave a really positive impact on our planet. And and so we at Simple Mills have been um, beginning to dig into this this space since 2020. uh, And it's been uh, just a really uh, exciting thing for us to be working on.
0: Wow, that's really beautiful. I have like so many questions, but that's, um, can't agree with you more. The, The food industry, the agriculture industry, Um, And it's really sad that we're even calling it an industry, because it's something that's coming out of the Earth. And today it's contributing more to uh, the planetary crisis than than fossil fuel burning even. Um, And um, it's lovely to hear that. I have so many questions, but I think we can unpack it as we go along. Um, But like I'm, I'm really it's been about a decade coming up uh next year I I believe and what how does it feel to look back and and see where your journey has brought you and how does it feel
1: you know to be honest it it feels a little bit surreal uh and, and in a lot of ways it feels like nothing has changed because because I'm still the same person uh but but I also look around and I know so much has changed and in, in our industry what's on our shelves what's uh, Simple Mills is obviously at a very different place for today the the largest natural baking mix largest natural cracker and largest natural cookie brand um and so that's it's like a a, a humbling fact that you can't really ever reconcile with uh, <laughs> like you never actually believe it um but I, but I think in terms of how I feel looking forward to is, I I feel invigorated and um, and excited about the future of of what we can continue to influence and create. Um, one of the I think one of some of my proudest moments in our history have been watching the industry, uh, watching the industry change. And so we are. I I referenced in the beginning how the Uh, The baking mix shelves, when I first started, had sugar as the number one ingredient. And many of the products, that's something that would never happen today. And and, and I think that's really neat. Like the first time that we made, that we were listed in Mintel as something to watch. I thought this is wonderful because you know who's reading this is Betty Crocker. And (laughs) while they're probably not going to make a product that's different uh, or a product that's sorry, a product that's just like ours, they'll probably... Think about okay in our next launch should we consider using less sugar because we're seeing um, the success that's related to um to this kind of changing consumer interest and, and as a result i feel kind of a similar um i i think excitement about the space in terms of thinking about how our food impacts our planet and how consumers are beginning to value that piece more and more and the pressure that that puts on players in the food industry, and the the changes that will come as a result.
0: Yeah, that's that's really fantastic. Actually, that's absolutely true. That the in the last decade, the the health idea of health and idea of what we put into our bodies being directly uh, linked to health has changed so much, and uh, this value for natural products. I mean. 15, 20 years ago, people would call it hocus if you just like, if you thought of eating natural local food. Um, so that in that sense, I think Simple Mills certainly was um, was one of the pioneers in in really bringing this to the mainstream, I would say.
1: Well, thank you. <laughs> we,
0: we hope oh, that is our hope and goal. <laughs> that is awesome. Yeah, but... Um, as you started when you were really young, and I'm wondering, um, what was it like to be a woman founder sitting at the helm of a business which was kind of challenging um, the norm of what health is or what food and snacks should be? Um, what was that like?
1: It's funny because I could I could go so many different directions with this. You know, I I think on one hand I was just so uh, myopically focused on the on making the business successful, that I didn't have much of a time to bat an eyelash or think about um, the <laughs> the the environment around me quite as much. Uh, and so it was you know, I, looking back, I can see it was really difficult to raise money. I mean my first um, my first fundraising round, oh my goodness, like I to give you just a little bit of a story there, I was, at the time, attending um, University of Chicago's uh, Booth School of Business, uh, and I was taking a course on um, on the New Venture Challenge, which is a competition to get investment in your business. Um, Funny enough, I had applied to business school around the same time that I started the business, and they were kind of like these two independent, unrelated aspects of my life. Uh, But by the time I got to business school, I was prioritizing classes that let me work on the business Uh, and um, and was pretty much exclusively focused on the business's success. And so I ended up taking this course really because I I wanted a course that would let me spend as much time as possible on the business. Uh, But it ironically was was centered around fundraising. And so I was introduced to all of these potential investors um, at just the perfect time. Um, I mean, it was really a a wonderful um, coincidence that I I was in the right place in the right time. But even despite that, despite the fact that you have like a premier business school, that you have um, wonderful access to potential investors, it was really difficult. I would talk to Probably nine different investors every day, and every one of them would say, uh, "You know, this isn't right for me." But uh, but I have someone who it might or like there's two people in my network who it might be right for, and they would introduce me to those two people, and uh, and so I would I would talk to them, of course. And it got to the point that the way that we ended up getting our uh, our our lead investor for our first round was he went to a grocery store in Charlotte, North Carolina before talking to me and standing next to him in the grocery aisle, he asked the woman next to him what she thought of the brand. And she independently had been speaking to me about investing in the business. And so he said, what do you think of this business? And she said, well, I'm thinking about investing in it. (laughs) <laughs> which of wow. course created a lot of, uh, I think excitement and um, excitement on his end. Um, but I think it's just that, I think I think part of what's, um, of course we've all seen the statistics about how difficult it is for, for women to receive funding and um, or, or how few women receive funding for their businesses relative to men. And I think part of it is that women solve different problems than men do. Um, so it, the problems that a woman might solve may not resonate with male investors. So you take a, um, a natural food company as an example. Women do most of the grocery shopping. And so their ability to uh, for that to resonate with them is just not quite as high as, say, something in um, maybe, I don't know, financial services. So I think that's one piece is, is looking at different problems in different ways. Um, and another piece is, is really the, um, the likelihood of imposter syndrome. Uh, mm-hmm. And so you see this a lot more, I see it on, on our team, even I of a lot more imposter syndrome among, among women, where when they say they have to be kind of 180% sure before they're going to tell you, yes, that's true. Uh, and, mm-hmm. yeah. and I think that's something that I've had to wrestle with too, is um, how to, um, kind of, how to note the, the imposter syndrome when it comes up and not overly react to it, mm-hmm. uh, and, and, and expressing confidence when I do have confidence. Right.
0: Yeah. I mean, I remember when I, I was growing up and I, I didn't believe in the glass ceiling. I just thought, oh, you know, I can do anything. And then as I, I grew in my career, I kept I believe I kept hitting it, and but I just blamed myself, or a lot of times thinking, "Oh, okay, maybe it's not good enough." And so, at the point of awareness that, "Oh, it's not just me," and it's not most of the time it's not at all me, but it's it's this it's a system. It's it's a lot of uh, a lot of issues, a lot of lack of uh, alignment in in basic roles that have been played for generations now. And so, it's I just feel it's like so important. For young women to know that um, w- you know there are women who made it, and and these are the kind of challenges, and this is, is this is how you get past it. This is how you rethink it. And I'm wondering, did you have like a community or mentors um, who supported you through it, and like um, a hand to hold while I mean, also as a single founder, which is otherwise you have a partner to like um, at least vent with. So I'm. What, what was your support system like?
1: Yeah, I think one of the biggest pieces of support that I had was it came from my uh, my coach. Uh, so I in the very early days of the business, uh, I, I met uh, who, the woman who is still my professional coach today. Uh, so she was introduced to me by one of our, um, one of our earliest investors is she was his former business partner and he thought perhaps she might want to roll with us. And when I met her, I was struck by just how smart she was with, and what I'll call the people stuff. (laughs) At least that's what I called it in my head back then. Um, because I think I'd come into running a business with this belief that leaders are born not made. And, and I think a lot of the, even I, I reflect back on high school, for example, and who you saw as the um, the person who was gonna win uh, the student council. And there was like this vision you had in your head of what a leader looked like, right? Yeah. And And those people, it felt, it felt like they they achieved it very naturally. And thus, when you go to run a business, you think, oh, I'm either a good leader or a bad leader, and that's just the way that I am.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so it's a very fixed mindset versus a growth mindset. And uh, I think one of the things that she really helped me realize was the degree to which um, the best leaders are people who work really hard at it. And this is something that I have watched in our business. I've watched in the leaders on our team. Um, The the people who are the strongest leaders in our organization, it's not by accident. Um, It's it's not because they were born as good leaders. It's because they work really hard towards it. Um, and, And I think that leaning into getting a coach so early on helps me along that journey. There are so many learnings that I've had over the years um, for for the leadership style that's needed from me as a leader um, for that stage of business and being able to bring that forward um, based on her coaching. And, and so I think that's been, she's been a real um I think guide and um, mentor through the process, but also a friend, Um, someone who, you know, when things don't go well, it's also um, a shoulder to lean on as well.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's it's this difference between um, the performance mindset and a learning mindset. Um, where the performance mindset is just you're supposed to be, just be prepared to do anything and you're supposed to be born and like secretly train, or I don't know. <laughs> so when you start looking at it, like everything is a learning and everything is a learning curve. There's, it just allows you to be more free, be yourself and, and have so much more encouragement from the self. Um, yeah, so that's, uh, I just wanted to, um, I, I really feel that it's, women supporting other women in this is so important just just from a point of view of of having that hope of saying oh okay somebody made it and um and it's just about changing how you look at the the world and and how you sort of um approach it uh yeah so um okay so Let's just talk about what it really means to be healthy for, um, for a bit. Um, you did mention that it was born out of a mission uh, to bring healthier food uh, for yourself. And then you've managed to kind of mainstream it. Um, and uh, your products are gluten free and it's paleo friendly. Um, From your own experience, um, you did mention it a little, but uh, could you elaborate a bit more on what it really means for the body um, when you switch to natural grain-free diets and in your experience and perspective?
1: Yeah, for sure. Um, You know, I I think one of the things that we really um, believe at our core is that food has such a, a power to transform the way that Um, the way that you feel, what you're able to do on a daily basis. You know, we all are familiar with like that 2 p.m. afternoon slump and the impacts that it can have um, when you when you eat a a lunch that's not ideal, for example. Um, And I think one of the one of our core tenets is a brand, too, has been not um, not I, I think preaching or endorsing specific diets and saying, okay, this is. Um, this is the one diet that everyone should follow, or this diet works for, for everyone. I, I mean, I can personally attest to the, the fact that finding the right diet for your own personal needs can really be an incredible change. And so that's part of the reason why we're not um, necessarily prescriptive in saying, okay, this is exactly the diet you should follow. We want people to listen to their bodies and focus on bio-individuality, which also can change for an individual at different times throughout their lifetime, Um, depending on their microbiome, depending on their stage of life. Um, Each person's individual makeup is unique and and what works for one person may not work for another. Um, And so as a result, you'll kind of notice on our box, while our products are kind of gluten-free and grain-free, um, we focus not so much on, um, on what our products don't have or are free from, uh, but rather what our products do have. So, um, so real nutrient dense ingredients, uh, that offer protein, that offer healthy fats, fiber, um, because we kind of see these things as timeless principles of no matter who you are, no matter your, who your situation, these are things that are, are going to work hard for you. Um, and I think too, it's a more optimistic message as well. Um, I know there's so many negative messages in the world or on packages and, and it's something where we don't want people to feel afraid of their food. Um, mm-hmm. I uh, feel, well, I can't have that or that's off limits. Um, uh, and so it also encourages a very healthy relationship with food, which is thinking about what food can do for you versus why you should be afraid of certain things in your food. Right.
0: Yeah, yeah, I saw that. Like with your packaging—it's um—it's very simple. What you talk about as ingredients, there are six or seven ingredients, and there's and that's it. Um, and that idea of this is it and nothing else, and then you look at that. Oh, okay. So, do I feel like eating pumpkin powder, and how does that make me feel? Um, is a very intuitive sort of a response. Uh, uh and and did your own intuition. Play into this because I did read that you still work on a lot of the recipes. Um, so, how do you bring this intuition into your process?
1: Mm. It's an interesting question. You know, <laughs> I think that um, in terms of in terms of how we bring intuition into the innovation process, it is a uh, it, it's a funny thing because you can prove something out perfectly with data and still believe that it's not quite going to be the right thing. Um, Yeah, I think one of the places where we feel this particularly, which is um, I I think uh, particularly relevant for your podcast is on the topic of regenerative agriculture. So one thing that we um, really believe is that the foods that are grown in a regenerative, using, Regenerative principles in a regenerative system are a lot more likely to have a higher nutrient density, uh, and this is something that is just starting to be proved out. And it's part of the reason why we're digging in this space and believe that people and planetary health go hand in hand. But so it's like, can we perfectly prove that at this time? No, we can't. And um, and so it's kind of leaning into these spot areas. I mean, even starting the business originally, that was. Um, and in, an intuitive move. It was, I don't have the exact data to say that people are going to make these decisions and they're, um, they're going to begin questioning what they're eating and um, thinking more critically about the impacts that um, sugar and all of these uh, processed ingredients have on their health. Um, but once I felt it personally, I said, wow, that has a very real impact. Um, other people are going to recognize this. So, um, so I do think it's a very important part of the innovation process.
0: Yeah, speaking of like this, so much of the science, um, there's, there's every other day, Something is proven. Something is disproven. Um, there's a new superfood, or there's a there's a new uh, trend that is coming out. So I imagine that's also kind of a challenge for you because you're really focusing on this food from from what 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 from the core of it that it is natural, it's healthy, and it makes you feel good. But then when you're in the market, um, how do you manage or balance it out? How do you Balance out this these changing trends with all of this scientific data, which, um, which is really kind of flooding the market and often confusing um, the consumer, uh, the ordinary person.
1: Yeah, and I think these diet fads are are a real challenge more broadly for, um, for people achieving kind of great outcomes uh, because we don't necessarily. We as a brand don't believe on in jumping onto the latest trend. Um, we do want people to experiment with different diets and um, experiment with their own personal health journeys, so that they're figuring out what works for them personally. Um, but I, I don't think that that really takes them back to adopting the latest "quote unquote" it diet. And the funny thing is, I've had you know people in the space who have encouraged me to say like, "Oh, you should put this on the front of your package because it's really." Um, in tune with the given trend of the moment, and our our response as a brand has been, yeah, we recognize that that item fits the criteria for that diet, um, but we're not going to put it front of pack, knowing full and well that putting it front of pack would increase sales, um, because we don't we don't want people to get too attached to these. Um, These diets that that come and go and may encourage people to do, like some parts of it are probably rooted in in good kind of resilient nutrition science um, and have that staying power, but then parts of it are not. Um, And and that's kind of where we go back to these evergreen wellness principles and habits. So um, like things that we believe, um, focusing on whole foods. Um, so things that you can pronounce, things that your body knows what they are. Um, eating fewer artificial ingredients, um, things that, less things that are made in a lab, um, more things that are grown in nature. Um, eating things that have um, real nutrition for your body, so vitamins, minerals, micronutrients, uh, and and all of those things are really going to build to a healthier being, and so. It's funny because my my dad um, he runs an architecture firm, and his position has been these uh, these architecture trends even come and go, uh, and his his focus has been on evergreen design principles and what all what kind of into eternity looks really good on a house. Like for example, you think about Parisian architecture. I don't think any of us has ever looked at that and been like, wow, that's not just beautiful um and yet it's so old it's not kind of going by these year by year trends and fads um and, and so I think about it in very much the same way
0: oh that's that's great I'm also an architect by the way, <laughs> and, oh, so... no
1: way. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and I too believe that so when you when you do something it's really about what you feel in the space and and uh, that's always timeless and that's excellent that that's the kind of foundation on which this this brand is built and it's uh this beautiful combination of intuition and science and the actual results that you obtain that's that's super as a brand and as a product Um, And on that note, um, I just want to say that you are tuned in to Regenerative Rising's podcast, Elevating Stories, Activating Change. I am your host, Nisha Mary-Paulos, Executive Director of Regenerative Rising, and today we are speaking with Caitlin Smith, founder and CEO of Simple Mills, a food brand that has bridged the gap between taste and health by focusing on what is natural. So... Caitlin, at the end of the day, all of this kind of circles back to how our food is produced and you've been um, something you've already brought up and how there's a lot of focus now um, with your brand and your way of working um, on regenerative agriculture. Because at the end of the day, how our food is produced is linked to our planet. And that is kind of something I really find very meaningful about the paleo diet, because it just goes back to human beings as a species and like how did we originally eat uh, before there were machines and the technology to like figure out our food. And and I, and that's kind of really simplifying it in, in a very wholesome way. And, um, but on the other hand, there's so much organic washing out there. And there's this so much bureaucracy and terminology, which is so nuanced and it confuses the buyer. And um, so in that regard, like even for you as a brand, how do you go about sourcing your ingredients to ensure that, you know, the almond flour or the vanilla or the cacao that you use is truly healthy and stays healthy through, the, through its movement um, through the supply web?
1: Yeah, and I think this is a place where companies probably don't have enough, um, it, 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 it's, it's tough for companies to be in touch with this, And um, I, we're fortunate in that since our early days, it's been a place where we paid quite a bit of attention, um, primarily due to the impacts on people's health. Um, Because we feel so strongly about kind of the principles of kind of what's hidden in our food and um, in making sure that we have very tight um, standards about what goes into our products. Um, Another aspect of that that, that's kind of driven that for us is that our products are very difficult to make um, in that. It's it's not as simple as making a wheat containing product or the next product on the shelf. You know, using, for example, we don't use gums and emulsifiers. Um, using gums makes processing a whole lot easier. And uh, without them, you have to have even tighter ingredient guardrails, um, or else your manufacturing is going to fluctuate a lot more, you're going to have a lot more quality problems. All that to say. Uh, Sourcing has been a core competency that we've developed since the early days of our business of diving into the supply chain. So if you think about most products on the shelf that you see, even ones produced by large food companies are uh, are contract manufactured, meaning uh, the brand hires out the manufacturing of the product. Um, And oftentimes they leave the sourcing of the ingredients up to the contract manufacturer um so they have a contracted rate that they pay the contract manufacturer for the um for the product um however for us we've said from the early days we want to be the ones who are doing the sourcing which is something that's more expensive for us it's a, it results in a much larger operations team uh <laughs> but it also um it, it also really helps us have tight control over the process um and, and this is something that um, as we've delved into the uh, the regenerative agriculture world, uh, also enables us to work directly with um, with farmers and growers in the process. So, like, I'll give you an example. One of the um, One of our uh, projects that we just announced this year um, is a multi-year farmer-led partnership to make almond farming more sustainable. Um, So we are working with with several other brands. So Capello's, Daily Harvest, um, to create what we're calling the Almond Project. Uh, And it is working with uh, Treehouse Almonds um, and White Buffalo Land Trust to bring regenerative soil Principles um, and regenerative, um, sorry, uh, regenerative principles into their farming process and experimenting with the impacts um, of those principles and um, and actually measuring it so that we can share it with other farmers in the um, in California Central Valley. And this project really was created because we already had a tight relationship with Treehouse Almonds, which is, you know, one of our suppliers and has been for for a very long time. Uh, And so when we came to them with, okay, we we would like to experiment with these principles, they said, oh, that's really interesting. Let's give that a try. Um, So it's all to say that having those relationships down to the farmer level um, really enable us as a brand to take a more holistic look at our supply chain and have much, much more influence and control over that process. But I, I, I hesitate to use the words influence and control because I think it's it's a partnership, right? Like we're working with them to figure out what makes sense.
0: Yeah, I did read that. And I thought that was, um, I actually meant to ask you more about the, the Almond project because, um, well, by the way, the fact that you've put these partnerships and these suggestions and ways to contribute on your website is really great. Um, it also gives the, the buyer, the casual viewer, an idea of what really, how can you as an individual contribute? How can you as a brand contribute? And if, if you're not, if you don't want to contribute in that way, how are you contributing by just buying or um, consuming um, a Simple Mills product? Uh, so what about things like um, the other part of regenerative um Agriculture is, of course, um, buying things local or sourcing things local, and I think the almond project beautifully fits into that because it's one of those things that um, are are uh, grown in the in the region. And um, so, what does that look like for you, as in a in a very practical sense? Like, how do you engage with the farmer? Is is it, do you play a direct role in that? Do you have a team that does that?
1: Yeah, so, um, so in terms of how we work with the farmers, we do have um, team members who um, who work directly with the farmers. I also got to the farms, and it's honestly the highlight of my entire year when I'm there. Uh, <laughs> uh, my favorite actually is um, one of the farmers that we're working with. Well, I guess I can't name favorites, but one of the <laughs> ones that I'm very excited about uh, is, uh, is a farmer that we're working with out in Minnesota. I'm on sunflower. Um, So, you know, as we are, I think this has become much more evident in the news lately, but sunflower is primarily sourced from uh, Ukraine and Russia. Um, And uh, funny enough, you know, we put in place this partnership, I want to say it was 2020, where we started working with several Minnesota farmers on uh, bringing these principles to life. Um, on on their land in Minnesota, so we took. Um, okay, they were previously growing uh, corn on the land, and um, and we kind of contracted them, provided them with direct contracts, financial incentives to uh, to support the adoption of these principles so they're um using cover crops they're doing low to no till they're putting animals on the land Uh, and it's been it's been a stunning success it's been really neat to see so like when i went out there and saw uh saw luke last uh last summer he actually dug out a um a section of his field six feet down just a small section um, so that we could see a cross section of the soil uh, and so we could see how far down the topsoil we went. We could see how far down we were getting worm casings. How far down the roots were going. And sun the sunflowers were rooting um, six feet plus down. There were worm casings six feet plus down. And what was neat too is last summer I think they received one bout of rain um, in that growing season, and the sunflowers did great. Like they did a great job of making use for that. And that's part of probably. Why you're seeing um, the roots go so deep as they were, um, and so all to say, like we we partner across our team with um, with these growers. Uh, there are other instances where where it doesn't make sense, um, but where we where we do believe that it kind of better is possible. So um, one of the places, another place where we're working right now is um, is on coconut sugar. So coconut sugar is a, a great crop for um, for consideration in a regenerative system it grows very well in agroforestry environments and so we've been working through pure Proje um, on kind of these um, these coconut sugar agroforestry projects in um, in Java Indonesia um, so that we're able to kind of also apply regenerative principles to our to our coconut sugar uh, but of course you know to your point that's that's not local and um, it, I think that one thing that I have to caution our team on is this, like this idea of striving for absolute perfection, um, where I think this whole thing is a journey, right? Like we can't, we can't get ourselves wrapped up in, okay, if it's not checking every single box perfectly, then we shouldn't do it at all. Cause that, cause that's the danger, right? Is that it just gets too overwhelming.
0: Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: I went and saw, um, this is something that just really stands out to me. I went and saw um, former president Obama speak um, shortly after his term and someone asked him a rather timely question of how do you feel like, do you feel like you got enough done? (laughs) (laughs) And he, he, he said, you know, I have to, and I'm I'm in a butcher's words, I I won't do them justice, but he basically said something to the effect of, you know, I I have to get my team to realize that better is better. Um, that it's, you know, groups of people move a boulder up a hill um and it rests there for a second. Uh, And, um, and then another group of people moves the boulder even further. And that's how you end up with, um, you know, the women's right to vote or, or a civil rights um, is is something successful in the civil rights movement is it's just it, these things are all incremental. And I think that regenerative agriculture is very much the same way, which is that um, we, we have to move things along the spectrum and not get caught up in, uh, well, we didn't address every single ingredient in our product. Uh, because that we can't do that on day one. Um, but that better is better.
0: Yeah. So that's, that's absolutely true. And, and also, I mean, from the practicality of it, because the idea is to change the system as much as you can. And then if, uh, if you're, if you, if you, if you do it too drastically, then there's no adoption. You cannot, you cannot be in the baked goods uh, market and tell people not to eat brownies. It's just, it just doesn't, um, it just doesn't take if you do that. So that's really, um, I, I, very beautifully put. Um, but I'm wondering, do you, um, you were mentioning that with the farms in the U S that you've actually engaged, have you had the opportunity to go to one of these farms, uh, with the coconut sugar or the cacao, um, and see those things as well?
1: I haven't had a chance to do the coconut, uh, sugar ones yet. I, I mean, this project's still, uh, you know, about a year old, and I'm also pregnant and uh, okay. <laughs> oh, travel to Indonesia, yeah, but but, <laughs> but I very much look forward to it. I'm mean, I'm, like I said, it's the highlight of my year when I get to go. Oh,
0: wonderful. Um. Oh, and on on that note, like I mean, we're coming to sort of the last part of our um our time together, and I wanted to ask us well a little bit more on the personal journey side. As, as a woman um, and in this uh, system that we're in, where even the health that we're talking about, a lot of the data, a lot of the food is not very much attuned to women. So um, like, for example, like you know, um, my grandmother tells me, "Oh, okay. So uh, if you're not feeling uh, good today, uh, it's probably that time of, uh, you know, you should you should not uh, drink something, or if you're on your period, you should eat something else." And and about body heat. And so I'm just wondering, um, what is that like for you? So in this journey, when you discovered what works for you, um, and and uh, as you were mentioning your pregnant um how does the food how do you find that it affects uh the your body Mm,
1: for me personally um you know I think I think it comes back to I a lot of the same wellness principles that we've adopted as a brand have been ones that I personally strongly resonate with me personally which is um, that when I eat real food, I feel better when I eat, um, kind of highly processed food. My goodness, my goodness, it makes an impact. Um, when I eat things that have a lot of nutrition, um, that it, it, kind of nutrient density, it, it plays a large role. Like right now I'm having a, um, a smoothie that I made at home, just like raspberries, blueberries, um, peas, spinach, uh, cashew milk, uh, uh, kefir. Um, and it's, it's delicious. And also I know that I'm going to do well a couple hours from now. Um, so I, I, I think experimenting and figuring out what works best for, um, for each person individually is such a strong place to start. And,
0: uh, how do you, uh, how do you focus on your own well um, amidst all of this, uh, this madness that is running your business and uh, expanding and, um, growing so fast. How, how do you take care of yourself?
1: I think I'm a lot better at it today than I was 10 years ago. <laughs> uh, <laughs> when I started the business, it was like, it was all, all work. Um, it was nonstop. I, I would get to work before uh, the sun rose and I would leave work after the, the sun went down. Um, so I was already see the sun. Um, but, but I think for today, it's um, first of all, making sure that I'm eating a great diet, um, that I'm eating well, that I'm cooking for myself. Um, I, I think second of all, thinking about the, the impacts of stress and balancing that out as well. Um, so much of our environment can be stressful, but I I think mindfulness and um, a good meditation practice go a really long way. Um, I personally, and figuring out a place to fit in that practice too, so for me personally, my, um, my drive to the office in the mornings has become one of those times where it's, I take the time to notice the birds that are flying around me, and looking out at the view, and noticing the colors of leaves, and Um, and then when I get to work, I actually have found that I can sneak in five minutes where I just sit in my car five minutes longer and, uh, and do a (laughs) quick meditation. Um, but I think part of that too is, is building good relationships with family and friends and, um, making sure that you're kind of taking the time to, um, to recover. But I, I think it's all in balance, right? Like I'm also someone who loves, um, who loves speed and loves um kind of ambition and growth and probably wouldn't be where we are today without that and and so it's um it's the yin and the yang it's making sure that you have um kind of both the slow moments and the fast moments in your life
0: yeah and again i, I guess it boils down to the individual and what what really energizes you and what really relaxes you um and uh, that that those are like useful interesting things how to sneak in little bits of um, time for the self and uh, into your busy day um, which I think uh, would be much appreciated for everyone who's listening out there Um, yeah I think we're about ready to close and I think my last question for you is um, what have you been reading or watching lately that you would like to share something that's been interesting or eye-opening like Let's say like a closing thought. <laughs>
1: you know, I think for for us as a brand, one of the things we've been digging into more and more is there there are the beginnings of research coming out of um, the impacts on uh, on nutrient density with um, with regenerative agriculture, and that's been um, that's been something we've been just really excited about. Um, I think that's probably the been the biggest thing that we've been we've been paying attention to lately. Um, but all in all, I mean, I think just reinforcing the um, the responsibility, I think, that all of us have in this space. And it may seem unobvious at first. Um, I, I think that as, as you've heard me talk today, the us getting involved in this space, us working um, so closely with our suppliers um, to help kind of support changes in, in their world, um, it seems very logical, right? It, it, seems, um, it seems like it was probably easy to do and an easy decision to come by, um, but it's, it's not. Um, when I first started looking at this space and thinking about the impacts that our agriculture system has on, um, on our planet, I didn't know how we at Simple Mills could influence it. And in fact, I was thinking about how do I personally make an impact outside of Simple Mills? It took me a couple months to realize. My goodness, you own a food company. <laughs> um, maybe you guys could do something here. And, and so I say that just to uh, to encourage and inspire others that um, that it may not seem obvious when you're when it's forward looking um, of how you could personally be making an impact on this space. But it's very much possible, and better is better.
0: Wow, so beautiful. Thank you. That was excellent. Um, thank you, Caitlin. That was wonderful. I thoroughly enjoyed talking to you. Uh, Thank you for being here and uh, congratulations in advance, um, as you're about to be a mother and, um, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me and congratulations on the new role. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for being my first. Um, so, yeah, so that were we're done today. So thank you for joining us for Regenerative Rising's podcast, Elevating Stories, Activating Change. I am your host, Nisha Mary-Paulos, Executive Director of Regenerative Rising. And with me today was Caitlin Smith, Founder and CEO of Simple Mills. <laughs>